0: Augustine, speaking of himself, once wrote, From a perverted act of will, desire had grown. And when desire is given satisfaction, habit is forged. And when habit passes unresisted, a compulsive urge sets in. Let me read that again. From a perverted act of will, desire had grown, speaking of himself. And when desire is given satisfaction, habit is forged. And when habit passes unresisted, a compulsive urge sets in. These are the words of the great African theologian Augustine. Before his conversion at the age of 32, he had completely given in to lustful activity. Augustine was born 1,667 years ago yesterday. That's right. His birthday, kids, check this out. Augustine's birthday was November 13th, 354. He was born in present-day Algeria, and he lived a very immoral, lust-filled life prior to his conversion to Christianity. Reflecting back on his adolescence, he wrote in his book, his autobiography called Confessions. I wonder, does anyone read that? Or Okay, it's a good portion of people have read that. It's, a, it's an autobiography, his own looking back on his own life. And he says there, at the age of 16, the frenzy gripped me. And I surrendered myself entirely to lust. At the age of 16, the frenzy The urge gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. In his early thirties, he became intrigued by the truth claims of Christianity. But it was his craving for sex that prohibited him from giving his life to Christ. In his autobiography, he says, The good you love is from him. But only in so far as it is used for him is it good and sweet. But with justice will it become bitter. If you as a deserter from him, speaking of God, unjustly love what comes from him. Whether do you walk farther and farther along these hard and toilsome roads. There is no rest to be found where you seek it. Seek what you seek, but it lies Not where you seek it. You seek a happy life in the land of death, but it is not there. How can you find a happy life where there is no life? Speaking of lust, he says you seek a happy life in the land of death, but it is not there. How can you find a happy life where there is no life? Roughly 300 years prior to Augustine's words, the apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to a church in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, just south of the metropolitan city of Izmir. And Paul knew that one way the church should distinguish itself from the world is to have a proper understanding of sex and lust. In our text today, God is calling all of us to be marked off from the improper and idolatrous ways of the world. Uh, Early this morning, I decided to make what was one sermon into two sermons. So today, I'll just be going through verses 3 to 6 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. And we'll be looking that we'll be seeing that a church in a lust-obsessed world should remember its sainthood. A church... In a lust-obsessed world should remember its sainthood. And Ephesians Paul is, is wanting just going back, just tracing our steps real, for a second and Ephesians Paul is wanting this church to know the immeasurable riches they have in Christ, so they can be encouraged to live in a world that is antagonistic toward Jesus, his teachings, and then all, and also to those who follow Jesus. In the previous passage, Paul exhorted us to walk in honesty with one another, in grace with one another, generosity, and to encourage one another. And all of those exhortations are rooted in spiritual realities of us being sealed by the Holy Spirit, of all of us being redeemed, and of all of us being adopted into the family of God. And so as the text continues on into verse 3, he he moves to more specific and to a more alluring, deceptive sin, the sin of sexual immorality or fornication. And so all that is written about in verses 4 to 14 is Paul urging Christians To be aware of the deceptive sin of fornication. So let's read all of that text, though I'll only be preaching verses 3 to 6. You can find the text of Ephesians chapter 5, 3 to 14 on page 978 of your pew Bible. 978. Or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. O Lord. Have the light of Christ shine on our church this morning. Lord, give me discernment as I preach through this passage. To sense the various struggles there are in our church when it comes to fornication. And I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict hearts and encourage hearts. Lord, show us the evil of sexual morality. Show us the places in our own hearts where it is often concealed. We pray that we would remember we're saints. We pray that while you also bring conviction and convict the world of what is unrighteous, Lord, you also show us what is righteous. So we pray that we walk out of here hopeful. We can't do this in our own strength. And so we pray that you would do this in Jesus Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Uh, Church, our our sermon has four points today. Our first point is this: they all have to do with our our aspects of sainthood. So if you're taking notes, you can formulate your notes like this: Know four aspects of your sainthood. It'd be kind of the banner, know four aspects of your sainthood. One, know what is improper for a saint. Know what is improper for a saint. Look at verse 3 with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He spends a great deal of time trying to persuade us not to live... A certain way because it's not proper for us. It's improper. Now, is he just being some kind of Christian killjoy when it comes to sex? Is he, is this just another list of a bunch of things that Christians can't do? Maybe you're sitting there and maybe you're not used to Christianity and you're already kind of saying in your mind, Oh great, another sermon on things that Christians can't do. I encourage you, if you're just new to this church, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. This is the very first time we've mentioned any of this. So my encouragement to you is to go back after the sermon over lunch and to read chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 and understand that all that is said here really only makes sense in light of what is written previously to it. Paul is saying... For those who have not been redeemed, those who are called saints, don't engage in sexual immorality because it's improper. He's not merely just giving a moral code, but he's rooting our morality in who we are. Don't miss that, as is proper among the saints. Go back up to the beginning of verse 3. He says sexual immorality. In, in the Greek, that word is porneia. That's where we get our word porn or pornography from. Porn, sexual morality or fornication, graph, written. So pornography is written sexual morality. It's mentioned twice. It's mentioned in verse 3 and also in verse 5. Sexual morality is, is any kind of sexual activity, thought, action, speech, which is outside of a committed marriage relationship. Sexual morality is any kind of sexual activity outside of a committed covenant marital relationship. So sexual morality, and he goes on to impurity, and then he lists covetousness there. So impurity is anything that is, um, it says right there, impure, out of place. That is, uh, some translations have filthy. And then he mentions covetousness. If you are familiar at all with Christianity, the tenth commandment in Exodus twenty, when God gives His people ten commandments after He redeems them from slavery of the Egyptians, the the last one is "Do not covet another man's wife." And here we have uh, this wording, which often. Is a type of greed, and more specifically, in the context here, is this lustful desire to des- to have something that is not yours. And so, coveting in this context has a very explicit uh, sexual connotation to it. It's desiring in your heart something that God has not given you. And Paul says this is improper. One theologian. And explaining coveting here, he says it's unrestrained sexual greed whereby a person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. Unrestrained sexual greed whereby a person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. This is improper and should not be even named among you, Paul says. These type of sins have no place among holy ones. That's what the word saint means, holy one. When people think of the church of Christ, Jesus Christ's church, this should not come to their minds. Christians, in a good way, should stick out like a sore thumb in this world this world makes lights of fornication and pornography and Paul says in the church in those who are called out of this world and now called holy ones it has no place see we in a sense are all sexual sinners there's not one of us here who is not Ever had one lustful thought. All of human race is given over to this sin to varying degrees. The apostle knows that. The apostle could include himself in that. But what the apostle is doing here. Is he's saying there is a category of people. That are so consumed with lust and sexual morality. That make light of it that develop their own definitions, that affirm other people in their desires and also give into their own desires, that they're categorized as people that are given into this. So I don't think we're meant to read this in a sense, well, we're all depraved. We, you know, our church, we believe total depravity. Therefore, we all neatly fit into this category here. No, he knows that we're totally depraved. He knows that we're all sinners, But some sinners are saved by grace. And those are the saints. And some sinners aren't saved by grace. Because they still have not come to Christ for forgiveness of their sins. And that's what Paul is talking here. So church, know what is proper for a saint. Anything outside of the context of a committed marriage. That is sexual is improper for a saint. And goes against the will of God. And if you are known. To be one who makes light of God's words on sexuality, then that's improper and that has no place. Secondly, in verse 4, know how a saint should talk. Know how a saint should talk. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So when it comes to sexuality, saints should speak differently. Saints should speak differently. And he gives three ways that a Christian should not speak. They're given here because they're out of place for a saint. It's unbefitting for someone who's called a holy one, declared holy by the holy God to speak this way, to have ways of filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. So, church, one on road. As I go through this list of three improper ways to speak, ask yourself this question: Does this at all characterize me? And secondly, because it might not characterize you, people might not think of you in these ways. Secondly, ask yourself which ways in your heart. Are you believing these and are just this close to coming out into the open? Out of the mouth is an overflow of our heart. So in which ways, these unbefitting ways, are you most prone to sin? First of all, he talks about filthiness. This means speech that is shameful or obscene. To act in defiance of of what is social or, or moral standards. Which results in embarrassment and shame and disgrace. Are there ways that you would speak among other saints that are improper and befitting? Do you speak in one way at your workplace, but in your Christian context, there's no way you would speak like that. You could be liable of filthy talking. Secondly, he says foolish talk. This carries a connotation of sort of speech that occurs at parties when someone has drunk too much. And their lips get a little bit uh, loose, or their tongue gets loose. And foolish talk comes out of their mouth, but in a more sexually explicit way. If you've ever grown up around alcohol, if you've had friends that have alcohol, or you yourself have gone through seasons where you drink too much, or maybe you are flirting with that too much right now, this is par for the course, isn't it? When people drink too much, something happens and they become foolish in their speech. And that foolish has some sexual undertones to it. Thirdly, crude joking. Uh, This is a very interesting word. First of all, all three of these words, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, are only found here in Ephesians in chapter five here. So they get really specific. Crude joking refers to using your quick wit and cleverness as a way to make sexual jokes. It's a very specific definition. I think that's the more specific, the more helpful it can be. Not everyone's witty and that's okay. There's different kinds of humor. There's goofy humor. There's banana peel humor. There's when you slip out a banana peel you fall down, you laugh at that. We used to laugh at people in the brickyard at NC State that would trip over bricks if they were riding their skateboards. That's goofy humor, right? Or, and also mean humor. And then there's this crude joking that he's referring to here, which is using cleverness, which is a gift from God, using wit as a way to make sexual jokes. So church, let's just get real here, right? That's, that's a stupid phrase. Sorry to say that. We're always real. Let me get very specific in our context. In our Christian subculture, it is very common to watch certain shows which don't have, has their biggest aim, sexual jokes or uh, making light of lust. It's not their biggest aim. Biggest aim is humor. But and their way to get there, not the only way that uh, they make people laugh is through sexually uh, crude joking. But it's one of the ways. And so I just know in our context that we can often watch shows like that. And I'm not here to say don't watch shows like that. I'm just here to say be on guard. And for many of us, it's wise and discerning to not watch certain shows that have crude joking. Because if you're not careful, you're going to consume, 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 eat, 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 and then eventually what's going to come out? That same kind of crude joking. Or your humor will be so warped that you can only find crude joking. You can only laugh at crude joking. It's a form of using your wit or cleverness in a way to make sexual Jokes. At church, I'm guessing if you're like me, you're prone to measure yourself right now, not against God's word, but against others. You're prone to measure yourself, not against God's word here, but against others. As a Christian, we should not, uh, we should not measure ourselves against others, but instead see these truths and measure ourselves against God's word. Get other people out of your mind right now, Christian. And do some reflection upon your own speech. As saints, we shouldn't speak like this because it's alien to who we are. Then Paul continues here in verse four. And I, I wonder what you would put as the antidote to this type of speech. Maybe accountability groups is the is what Paul's gonna write. Maybe he's gonna say, just put a muzzle on your mouth and don't say anything. Uh, those are wise things, a proverbial muzzle, I think, are wise things sometimes. Accountability groups are wise. But verse 4 says, instead of those things, let there be thanksgiving. Thankfulness is God's grand plan for you to combat a filthy mouth. <laughs> it's the antidote to this sort of speech. In Scripture, thankfulness is the response to God's work of redemption. It's acknowledgement that all blessings flow from God. If you find a Christian who is overflowing with gratitude for his redemption, for God bringing them out of slavery, of sin, to slavery, to righteousness. If you find this kind of Christian that talks about the blessings they have from God, you'll be hard pressed to find filthiness and crude joking and foolish talk coming from their mouth. This goes back to Ephesians 4.29, as we looked at last week. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Saints should express gratitude rather than base joking. Christian, remember what the Lord says about our words. I tell you on the day of judgment. People will give account for every careless word they speak. For every careless word they speak. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're prone to think that this isn't involve you. Consider what comes out of your mouth. And no, that's what's lying in your heart. And the answer is not neutrality. The answer is not, no, 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 don't speak like that. No, God's answer is be thankful. Be filled with gratitude for his blessings in your life. And I think ultimately the work of redemption in your life. Speak with gratitude. Thirdly, a saint should know how to act. A saint should know how to act or conduct him or herself. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So we have coarse jesting, sexual humor, filthy talk that precedes immoral acts. You see that? It doesn't have to precede it, but often when someone has sexual humor and coarse jesting as their speech, they're on a poor path to sexual immorality, pornography, fornication. They become impure. Scripture says they become an idolater. So the word in focus here is mainly that word for pornography, porneia, fornication. Uh, The King James Version gets real serious and calls it whoremongering. So just to wake us all up, Paul's writing to Christians. You guys are Christians. This is what he wants us to know. That these things have no place in us. As saints, but they refer to the sons of disobedience, where the wrath of God is going to come upon. See, all of us were redeemed, and we used to be sons of disobedience, and we used to be idolaters. And so Paul's writing to this to this Ephesian context, knowing full well full well it's a bunch of people who've been called out of darkness and called to walk in light. So I want you to to go over to Acts chapter 19, 21 to 34 with me. That's on page 928 of your pew Bible. And just notice the idolatrous culture that Paul is writing to. Paul is here, and this is right before the riot at Ephesus. Uh, When we were over in Turkey this summer, a few of us went down. Raise your hand if you went to the arena this summer in Ephesus. Yeah, it's amazing. You can see where this riot took place in modern-day Turkey. So look at 1921. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having spent... Had having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Worship, read idolatry. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, ...who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice... Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Idolatry rules the city of Ephesus. If you notice, they don't even know why they're in the arena. You notice that? The divine office is making it very clear. Idolatry is full of ignorance and chaos and riots and people don't even know why they're getting behind this cause, but they're getting behind a cause, and they're ready to murder because of it. And this is idolatry. What a picture of idolatry this is! And Paul here in our text is calling idolatry coveting, desiring something so deeply. And so you take anger, which we talked about last week, just a little bit of anger in your heart. What happens if that anger keeps growing and growing and growing? Becomes bitterness, becomes vengeful. And friend, if unrestrained, our anger becomes murder. And so here when it comes to lust, if our lust, the little seedling of lust grows and grows, it works itself out in horrible ways in our mind. Seeking things on the internet, seeking other relationships, and it can grow and grow and grow and that why that 's why Paul has this connection between coveting and idolatry you 're wanting something you don't have, but then again, in god 's wisdom he 's not just telling us not to think a certain way he 's Reminding us of what we already have. So rather than desiring what God has not given you. And that which is forbidden. He reminds us that we have this inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So go back over to Ephesians. And look how Ephesians chapter 1 puts it. In verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our inheritance is Christ. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that we're never going to lose our inheritance. And one day we'll acquire possession of it. We'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. And all those things that we want, but we shouldn't want, all those things that are horrible for us, are evil for us, they will no longer allure us because we'll be standing in the face and the brilliant, the, the, the radiant glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a saint should not act in any of these ways that are immoral or impure or idolatry. That's not who we are, friend. We don't have a lifestyle that lusts after things that God hasn't given us. Not everyone who is a non-Christian lives like this. There are plenty of Christian or non-Christians who have a committed relationship. He's not referring even to Christians here. He's just saying, don't live like that. Be reminded of what you were so that you can live how you are. He says, "Jesus is God's Jesus is God's anointed king, and now you are under His lordship in His kingdom, citizens of another world, not the world where you live. You see, friends, our world approves, endorses and celebrates lust. If you feel it, it should be yours. Saint, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We are those who have repented of our sins and placed our trust in the gospel. The good news that our sins have been forgiven. And we are those who believe that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to be overcomers of those sins. Christ himself became sin for us when he died on the cross. And now we live as citizens in his kingdom because we are covered by his blood. And so if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is a good thing. If you're feeling like you are condemned, that is not of Christ. Unless you are not of Christ. And if you are here not yet a Christian, let me encourage you that there is wrath waiting for you. There is a good God who execute good judgment on all those who are apart from Christ. And we do not come here as those who have any wisdom of our own. We come here as humble people proclaiming that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. If you have more questions about that message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, please come find me afterwards. I'd love to continue talking to you about what it means to follow Christ and to no longer be condemned for the sins that we justly deserve. One wrote if you are engaging in sexual morality, if you are involved in pornography on a regular basis, if you are just maybe on a monthly basis, a yearly basis, I don't know what it is, if you're having impure thoughts in your minds, I'm going to encourage you with, with three warnings. In a sense. Why you should not engage in that. One. If you're engaged in pornography. It desensitizes your mind. It numbs. What should be right pleasures. And over time. You have an inability to achieve that same high that you used to get. Your dopamine levels crave something more and more. You get bored and you no longer are satisfied with one level of immorality. You crave more and more. That's how sin works. That's part of Satan's playbook. So let me warn you, if you think you are just kind of coddling your sin just a little bit, that's not the right mentality when it comes to lustful desires. As we'll see next week, we should expose those, bring those into light, and you'll find a bunch of saints here at Warnell Road that want to help you because we all need help in this battle. Well, secondly, we're going to talk about this more next week, is objectification. When you do this, you start looking at people as objects rather, as, rather than those who are created in the image of God. And it's hard to be a brother or a sister in Christ and objectify someone. Third, you have an inability to serve. If, if I'm characterizing you right now to some degree, you have an inability to serve because you're so busy struggling and fighting and, and resisting because you keep giving in and you have developed a taste for something that you shouldn't have a taste for. But you can't think about others. And so your mind is completely on this battle. Not that all of us don't battle to some degree, but you're so Engage in this battle, they don't have time to do anything else. And if you don't struggle, if this doesn't characterize you right now, if if you're not really, if this isn't really hitting home, uh, you might be self-deceived, or by the grace of God, you might not, you might be in a season of your life where this doesn't have the same grip that it maybe used to have. Maybe you are older, and for whatever reason, the things I'm saying to you more apply to younger people. Or maybe God has sanctified you to the point where this isn't struggle. Like this is not as gripping on you as it is in others. If that's you, let me just encourage you that when you pray through the membership directory, make this part of your prayer. Pray for the purity of the saints at Warnell Road. This affects all of us. We are one body. And church, remember what Jesus said, though. You have heard what it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in one sense, and in a very real sense, we're all adulterers. We've all looked at people in ways that we shouldn't. And we all justly deserve God's wrath. And friend, that should humble you. That's what's so missing about the. Christian cause in the late 80s and 90s, the moral majority. It might be wise for some political, it might be politically expedient, but it does cloud the gospel. We just list a bunch of do's and don'ts. We must uh, communicate that we are sexual sinners, that all of us to some degree have looked at other people improperly. And in Jesus' mind, we are adulterers. So what do you do with this? Again, we'll we'll talk more about this next week. But Jesus gives some advice. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If you keep going back and forth in this battle, if you are just consumed with this battle, in what ways are you proverbially? I think, though 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 it's a true statement, but proverbially, what are ways are you cutting off your right hand or gouging out your right eye? Do you keep going back and forth in this battle, and yet did you carry around a little computer in your pocket? With all the access, and you're like, I keep struggling with porn. And yet, in your pocket is the very vehicle by which you view this stuff. Brother, sister, figure something out. Go to the flip phone, get rid of your phone, throw it in the Missouri River. It's not worth it. I've been in pastoral ministry now for over a decade. And in general, I am so surprised how little Christians look at this word and at least don't get rid of the very vehicle by which they view sexual morality. Friend, it is not worth it. And guess what? There's life on the other side, and it is a thousand times better than that fleeting pleasure that you're getting, that fleeting high you get from looking at an improper image. As one theologian said, Your phones are like a brothel in your pocket. What measures have you taken to get rid of the brothel? I am encouraged by the many saints of Warnell Road and our church that have all kinds of ways in order to not have their phone or their computer be a vehicle for looking at improper things. So many of the members here have parental controls that other people have. So that they don't, in a moment of weakness, go and look up things that they don't, in their mind, want to, but in their flesh want to. If, If that's you, if you're not there yet, find a brother or sister. I think that you would be welcomed by someone who would gladly help you in this fight. But ultimately, the answer lies in a greater pleasure. In knowing who you are in Christ. And not just the ultimate greatest pleasure, but... But things that common graces that God has given us, like friendship. I wonder if your struggle is so tight that maybe you look around, like maybe you should just get a friend. Or, or find common pleasures in other hobbies. I'd I've, I've love getting to know Philip. Philip has about 20 hobbies. Making coffee, gardening, reading, other hobbies I've forgotten. Carpentry or woodworking. Like, other hobbies are so helpful to get our mind off of the battle of sexual morality. Also, find a greater purpose. Friends, serve this church. Serve this church. I've been so encouraged by some people coming over in the middle of the week and just doing small medial tasks in our church. We'll talk about this more next week and how we're, our greatest purpose really is a great commission. And part of that is to expose this darkness. And thirdly, find normal heroes. Find normal heroes. Those brothers that were standing up here earlier, Philip, Matt, Andrew, they don't engage. It's not characteristic of them to engage in sexual morality. They're not above having lustful thought like none of us are. But this is not their pattern. This is not their lifestyle. Find normal heroes, not ones that are far off, but in those in your local church. And lastly, as we close here, verse 6 says, know how a saint should listen. Know how a saint should listen. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Saints should be careful with what they hear. Christian, know that any teaching about human sexuality that differs from God's is satanic. It's right there in the first chapters of Satan's playbook to confuse what it means to be, what, to confuse what sex is. This is his strategy. It seems that Satan loves to pick apart Christianity in two main ways. Confusing the Trinity. Who God is. Is Jesus really God? You know, those subtle whispers in people's ears. And also with sexuality. And so he entices us with sin and with empty words that lead to sin. There's so much deception going on in our world when it comes to Sexuality and God's wrath is being stored up against all sexual sinners who have no advocate for them. You can go all across the world history to see this is a common tactic of Satan. You can look at temples in East Asia and to see that vile sexual acts are found in temples. You can see that among the people of Israel as you read first and second kings how they developed these male cult prostitutes and they put these images in temples you can go to all the many brothels in bangkok you can read about pederasty in roman culture you can hear about the horrible practice that goes on in afghanistan called bachabazi as displayed in the famous book the kite runner or you can even go a step further and uh, on the opposite extreme, and look to how women are being suppressed in Afghanistan by the Taliban and being treated as objects. Sexuality is so distorted, and there's so many voices that are speaking to us that we need to have our minds transformed by the Scriptures themselves. So, Christian, in a world that is so warped and confused about sexuality, what must we do? We must live as children in the light. This world is lust-obsessed. As I conclude here, it's fitting to conclude with a description of, uh, or a quote from St. Augustine. You see, Augustine, one of the most novel ideas he had, which really wasn't novel, it's in the scripture, is that the essence of sin is disordered love. So if you want to stop sinning in this way... What you need to do is find a greater love. And you were made to love Christ. So let me encourage you as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To trust that all things will be added unto you. God has made this very simple. It's not easy. But it's clear and it's simple. Seek Christ. Love him. And out of that love you will love others. Let this be your first weapon against the battle of lust. Watch your life flourish in the purity of your speech, in your actions, and the way you discern empty words. Friends, reflect on these truths. Spend a few moments in silent reflection, and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, thank you that according to your word, uh, you work when it is proclaimed. And so we proclaim that Christ has been crucified. And now we get to live in an abundance of hope and life. And we thank you that our greatest possession is Jesus. And we thank you that he is our inheritance. And Lord, we pray for one row that we would see that in our desires to live as is proper for saints to live that we would consider the love of jesus for us and may that root out unhealthy desires and temptations lord would you do this in our church and lord would you even prepare us for next week as we see what it means to live as children in the light and what it means to expose darkness we pray this in christ's name